We'll be looking this morning at Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 to 25. Before we do that, let's take just a moment to pray. Our God and Father, we need to hear from you today. God, we know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Lord, if you don't help us, we will not understand the scripture. We cannot benefit from it. We can't be transformed by it. We can't have sweet communion with you through the word of God if you do not help us. So we ask you, God, to help us. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. In every life, there will be moments of crisis. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist. Being a Christian does not shield you from crisis. Following Jesus does not mean you will have a life that is free from intense difficulty and trouble. What separates Christian from all others is not the absence of crisis, but how we respond in moments of crisis. And it's critical for you and I as believers to understand how God would have us to respond in moments of crisis. Because this is what separates us from the rest of the world. And I want you to know responding rightly in crisis has positive benefits for the Christian. You can't avoid crisis, but you can experience the peace of God in the midst of your crisis. You won't get through life without seasons of difficulty, but you can experience the sustaining power of God in your difficulty. You won't escape this life without trouble. Oh, but oh, understand, your times of trouble can provide the perfect conditions for growth in your walk with God. And your spiritual life can blossom in times of difficulty. And you know what? Your crisis can actually be an opportunity for you to be a positive witness for Jesus by responding rightly in crisis, you can experience positive benefits. And not only that, when you respond as you should in those times of crisis, not only are there positive benefits, you avoid negative consequences. Do you know the wrong response in a time of crisis can actually multiply your pain and problems instead of alleviating them? The wrong response in crisis can leave you in a state of anxiety and panic. The wrong response in a crisis can hinder your testimony and your walk with God before the world. Responding rightly in crisis can give you positive benefits and help you avoid negative consequences. So the question then becomes is, how do we respond rightly in a time of crisis? We can't avoid them. You've had them before. You're going to have them again. Some of you may be in a time of crisis even now. 
So how would God have us to respond? That's what we're going to discover today as we look at Isaiah 7, 1 through 25. Verses 1 and 2 give us the setting. There are three kings and three kingdoms mentioned in verse 1. There is Ahaz, who is the king of Judah. There is Rezin, who's the king of Aram, sometimes in the Bible called Syria. And there is Pekah, who is the king of Israel. Now, all of these nations are in Palestine. Judah is in the southern part of Palestine. Israel and Aram are in the northern part of Palestine. And what's going on here is these two northern kingdoms, Aram and Israel, have joined forces to go to war against Judah in the south. Look at verse 1. It came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. Now, verse 1 gives us the whole story from beginning to end. Verse 2, when it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, Ephraim is another name for Israel. The Arameans have camped in Ephraim or Israel. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Here's the situation. When Ahaz and the people of Judah hear that the Aramean armies have come down into Israel to join forces with Israel and they're going to come and wage war against Judah, it says Ahaz and the people of Judah shook like the trees of the forest shake with the wind, that means they were very afraid. Why are they afraid? They're afraid because they know that the combined forces of Israel and Aram are far too powerful for them. If you remember when the kingdom of Israel divided into two kingdoms, Judah in the south received two of the tribes. Israel in the north received 10. So numerically, Israel is a lot larger than Judah. And plus, the Arameans have come to join them. So Judah's afraid they're outnumbered. But here's something you need to understand. Why are these nations joining together to attack Judah? Here's why. The rising world power at that time is Assyria. They are fast becoming the largest, most powerful nation in the world. And they are beginning to threaten kingdoms like Israel and Aram. They're afraid of Tiglath-Pileser, who is the king of Assyria. And so what they want to do, they want to form an alliance of all the nations in Palestine to stand up against the Assyrians. But guess who refused to join their alliance? Ahaz in the kingdom of Judah. And so because Ahaz in the kingdom of Judah would not join their alliance, they want to attack Judah, overthrow Jerusalem, and put their own king in Ahaz's place. You see it in verse 6. Look at what it says. 
This is what they planned. Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it. Make for ourselves a breach in its walls. Set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. You see, if they can put their own puppet king in Ahaz's place, then they can get Judah to join with them in this alliance against Assyria. Are you with me so far? This is important for the background. This is the crisis that Ahaz is in. These two nations are going to come against him and he's under a great threat. And I want you to look at something in verse 2. When it was reported to the house of David, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his hearts and the hearts of his people shook. Did you notice there that King Ahaz is referred to as the house of David? Did you catch that? Isn't it weird to refer to a king as the house of David? Well, that happens a couple more times in this passage, and it's for a very important reason. Because here is the question. What is going to happen to the dynasty of King David? Do you remember back in 2 Samuel 7, God made a covenant with David. And he promised David, one of your descendants will rule over the people of God for how long? Forever. So if the kingdom of Judah, which is the dynasty of David, Ahaz is a descendant of David. So if the kingdom of Judah falls, what happens to the promise of God to the house of David? Are you with me? That's the issue. Will the dynasty of David be preserved? Will God's promise to the house of David be preserved? That's the crisis. Now here's the first lesson you and I need to learn. When we face a crisis, we are tempted to act on our own rather than looking to God. When we face a crisis, we're tempted to act on our own rather than looking to God. You see, here is what Ahaz is planning to do. Ahaz is afraid of Aram and Israel. So what is he going to do? He knows he's not strong enough. So you know who he's going to ask for help? The Assyrians. He's going to say, these two nations are afraid of the Assyrians. So I'm going to ask the Assyrians for help. That's not what God wanted him to do. So God sent the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz. Look in verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. That's what he calls Rezin and Pekah, these kings. He calls them stubs of smoldering firebrands. He says they're like cigarette butts that I only got to step on to put them out. There ain't nothing to them. He says, notice it, take calm, take care and be calm. You know what it literally means? It means 
make sure and be still. Here's the point. God sends word through Isaiah to King Ahaz. Don't do anything. Be calm. Be still. That literally means cease. Stop. I know what you're planning. Don't do it. That's the same words that appear in Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I'm God. It doesn't mean don't move. It means cease activity, cease panic, cease anxiety, cease worry. And that's what he's saying to Ahaz. I know you're afraid of these kings. And I know you're thinking that you'll just look to Assyria for help. I'm telling you, don't be afraid of these kings. They're nothing. All I got to do is step on them and squish them. Don't be hasty. What's he saying? Don't act on your own. Trust me. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. What's he talking about? The plan of Aram and Israel. The plan these two kings have hatched up to overthrow Judah and to put their own king in its place. God is saying their plan is not going to come to pass. Don't be hasty and join yourself to the Assyrians. Stop. And I want you to notice a detail in verse 3. It seems to not really have any place in the story, but it does. Did you notice who God told Isaiah to bring with him when he went to talk to Ahaz? Bring your son, Shear Jashub. Why, why is that important? Well, Ahaz would have known why it's important. It's because of what the name Shear Jashub means. It means a remnant shall return. See, this son with Ahaz, with uh, Isaiah, is a sign to Ahaz. It is God's way of saying, I will preserve the people of David. A remnant shall return. In other words, I will preserve a people for myself. You don't do anything. I will preserve a people for myself. God sends word to him. Listen to me. Don't act on your own. And notice the end of verse 9. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. You better trust me. You see, here's the thing I want you to see. We're like Ahaz. In moments of crisis, we are tempted to react out of fear or worry rather than responding in trust. See, our initial impulse in crisis is to do something, especially men. We're problem solvers. I got to do something. I got a problem here. I got to fix it. But our first response in crisis should be to look to the Lord rather than just acting on our own. Before we respond to a crisis, we should look to the Lord. You see, that's something Ahaz didn't do. He never considered what God would have him to do. Did you notice where he was when Isaiah went to talk to him? Verse 3. 
Look what it says. Look where he was. He had already started to take action on his own. Where was he? At the conduit of the upper pool. What does that mean? It's the aqueduct that brought water into the city of Jerusalem. You see, it wasn't until the reign of Hezekiah that the water supply came to Jerusalem underground. At this point in history, the water supply was overground in these aqueducts. So what's Ahaz doing? He's worried about attack and he's trying to secure Jerusalem's water supply. He's trying to figure out a way to protect it from attack. Why? Because if the enemy can cut off Jerusalem's water supply, guess what? Eventually they'll have to surrender. He's already taken action. He's already made his plan. He hasn't even consulted God. This is the mistake we make. Most of you know just recently, I had a crisis. It's a minor crisis, but one of my cars went down um, permanently. And uh, even though I knew better, you know what? You know what my reaction to that crisis is? Fix it. You know what my temptation is? Just go buy a car. You got to have a car. My problem is, Angela and I have been debt free for a while now. We don't want to take on a car. No, can't really afford it. But I got to have a car. And I'm thinking, well, I mean, there's nothing I can do. I got, I got to do something. I got to fix it. And I'm ready to go out and buy a car. I know better. I know better in a crisis. The first thing you have to do is look to the Lord, wait on the Lord, let Him reveal His will. But it's everything in me to fight that reaction to do something. You got to fix it. Right? Isn't that how we are when there's a crisis? Our first response is, what am I going to do to fix it? Listen to me. What I'm saying to you this morning is this. Whatever your crisis, whether it's a financial crisis or a family crisis or a relationship crisis or a job crisis, you have to resist your temptation to act on your own without first looking to the Lord. Don't do what Isaiah did. Don't just react. Look to the Lord. Think about this church. You lose your pastor. COVID strikes. COVID's hard on all churches. People begin to stay home. A lot of them never do come back, even when COVID's over. People begin to switch churches. I don't know why. When a lot of people went back to church, they went to different churches. You're without a pastor for, what, three years? Right in the middle of COVID? Your numbers suffered in the middle of all of that? And somebody might look at that as a crisis and say, well, we, we got to do something. We got to reduce something. We have to act. Let me tell you what we can't do. We can't react without looking to the Lord. Because making the wrong move is worse than making no move at all. You understand what I'm telling you? The temptation is we got to fix it. Start putting our heads together. What are we going to do? What ideas can we come up with? Let's look at secular marketing strategies and see if we can come up with some smoke and mirrors and lights and a carnival shot show and do what one pastor I know did to draw a crowd. He said, come to Revival tonight. We're going to raffle off a car. 
Not raffle off, but pick a draw and give away a car. He did it purely to draw a crowd. Makes me want to vomit out my nose that people would make a mockery of God in the church doing stuff like that. But people will do anything they think to draw a crowd. Right? Why? We've got to get people here. We've got to do something. What we have to do is not act on our own. We have to look to the Lord. I've got to move on or I'm going to be here till tomorrow. Here's the question. We can't act on our own. We have to look to the Lord and trust Him. But how do we know we can trust the Lord to preserve us in times of crisis? Well, here's the second lesson I want you to see. When we face a crisis, Emmanuel is our sign that we can trust God to preserve us. God does something interesting when he goes to Ahaz. He sends Isaiah to Ahaz. God is doing everything he can to convince Ahaz to trust him. Don't do anything, just leave it to me. You know what God does? Look at verse 10. The Lord spoke to Ahaz again, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. You know what God's saying? Look, ask me to do anything to prove to you I will take care of this problem. God has just told him, I'm going to preserve the house of David. These people coming to attack you are not going to succeed. You don't do anything. Leave it to me. And to prove to you that I'm telling the truth, ask me for anything as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol. Sheol's the bottom of the sea, the realm of the dead. In other words, look, tell me to paint all your camels purple. Tell me to do anything. Nothing is off limits. Call on me. Call my hand and I'll prove to you. What sign do you want? God wants Ahaz to trust him. In verse 11, what does Ahaz say? No. I'm not going to test the Lord. And he sounds pious. I don't want to put the Lord to the test. You know what the real problem is? Ahaz is a wicked king. And if you read about him in Kings, you'll find that out. Ahaz was a wicked king. He didn't trust God. He didn't want to do what God said. He had already decided what he was going to do. He was going to look to Assyria for help. He didn't want to submit to God. He didn't trust God. So he wouldn't ask for a sign. But you know what God did? God said, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Despite the unbelief of Ahaz, God is still going to preserve the house of David. Here's the verse that you know. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, most Bible scholars believe this verse has a twofold fulfillment. It has an immediate fulfillment in the context of Ahaz's day, and it has an ultimate fulfillment. Many Bible scholars would say the child Isaiah is referring to is mentioned in Isaiah 8 verse 3. Isaiah says, I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. 
The Lord said, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In other words, they're saying that this child is the one who was going to be assigned to Ahaz that this plan would fail. Now, let me say this. That is possible that it could be referring to that. If you look at verses 15 and 16, it does sound like he's referring to a child that will soon be born. Verse 15, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. Before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. The land of Israel and Aram. And it's true, before Isaiah's son was old enough to know good from evil, before he was what we would call the age of accountability, before that happened, it's true, the Assyrians had defeated Israel and Aram. So it's possible there could be an initial reference to that child. But we know that's not its ultimate fulfillment. Its ultimate fulfillment lies elsewhere. How do we know that? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel Gabriel is speaking to Joseph, and this is what he says to Joseph about his fiancée Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 is Jesus. Now I want you to track with me here. God says to Ahaz through Isaiah, you don't do anything. I will preserve the house of David. I will preserve the dynasty of David. How does God establish and extend the dynasty of David? How does he do it? In Christ. Christ is the promised son of David. He's the promised king in the line of David. So how does God ultimately preserve the house of David? Emmanuel. The one who really was God with us. You with me? What's the ultimate sign that God will preserve his people? Emmanuel. God with us. Us. Now, I want you to think with me for just a minute. What is the sign that you can trust God to preserve you no matter what the crisis? Emmanuel. Think about this verse. Romans 8, 32. If God did not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not with him give us all things? In other words, if God would give his son to save us, why would he not preserve us in crisis? 
He's already given us the very best He has. Why would He withhold anything else from us? I want to go back to my car crisis for just a minute as an example. A man of God saw fit to give me a truck. No cost to me. Now, do you think I would hesitate to go to that man if I needed a gallon of gas? Do this. No. No. I'd go to him if I needed 10 gallons of gas. Why? He's already proven his heart. He's already demonstrated his care. If he did it on such a large scale, why would I hesitate in such a small thing? Listen to me. If God has demonstrated on such a large scale how much he cares for you, why would you not trust him to preserve you in the ups and downs of this life? Are you, are you tracking with me? I mean, he gave you the best thing he had. That's all the proof you need that he will preserve you in whatever your crisis. So whatever crisis you face, you can trust God to see you through. And the proof of that is Emmanuel, Jesus. Whatever our situation as a church, we can trust that God will see us through it without us having to go out and connive and act on our own. How do we know? The proof is Jesus. What's our sign that God can be trusted in little things and big things? Emmanuel. God with us is our sign that we can trust Him to preserve us. So here's the situation. When we face a crisis, we're tempted to act on our own. It's human nature. What we need to do is look to God and trust Him. Now there's one more lesson we need to learn. Here it is. When we face a crisis, if we act on our own, there will be consequences. In verse 9, if you remember, God had already told Ahaz, if you don't believe, you will not last. Let me say it to you like this way. God said to Ahaz, it's trust or bust. Those are your options. Well, did Ahaz trust? No, he didn't. He carried out his plan and he looked to Assyria for help. Verses 17 through 25 spell out the consequences of what Ahaz has done. Judah is going to suffer hardship like they had not suffered since the time when the kingdom of Israel was divided into two nations under the king of Rehoboam. You see it in verse 17. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. What does that mean? That means the trouble that God is bringing is the king of Assyria. And there are four times in these verses you see the phrase, in that day. That means when God sends judgment upon them, 
When it happens, there are going to be four things that God points to specifically. Here's number one. The house of David would suffer hardship at the hands of the Assyrians and the Egyptians. You see it in verse 18 and 19. He pictures Egypt and Assyria as a fly and a bee. And look what it says. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is in the remotest part of the rivers of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. They will all come and settle on the steep ravines, on the ledges of the cliffs, on all the thorn bushes and all the watering places. Here's the picture. God's going to whistle like he's calling the dog. And the armies of Assyria and the armies of Egypt are going to move into Judah and they're going to occupy the land. That's the first consequence. Here's the second one. They will be humiliated. Look at verse 20. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor hired from regions beyond the Euphrates, that is, with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the legs, and remove the beard. The hair of the legs is a euphemism for private parts. In other words, they're going to shave the men from their head to their foot, their beard, everything. This would be absolute humiliation. Absolute disgrace and shame for these men to be shaved. And that's the point. Your land's going to be occupied by foreign armies. You are going to be absolutely humiliated. Here is the third consequence. The people will be left to eat the food of nomads, wandering peoples, because they will not have herds and cattle and sheep in number enough to eat them. Look at verse um, 23. Excuse me, verse 21. In that day, a man may keep alive a heifer and a pair of sheep, one cow, two sheep. Because of the abundance of milk produced, he will eat curds. For everyone that is left with the land, everyone that's left within the land will eat curds and honey. Here's the picture. This is wild honey. They're eating what the land produces on its own, and the only other thing they have to eat is the byproduct of the milk that their few animals produce, curds and butter. That's what they're left eating because they don't have animals enough to eat meat. So they're left eating like nomads. Here's the fourth consequence of their failure to trust God. The places where crops had previously grown will become nothing but briars and thorns. The land will become virtually uninhabitable. Verse 23 it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because the land will be briars and thorns. That means they'll come there to hunt because nothing's going to be there but animals. It'll be uninhabitable. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. They will become a place for pasturing oxen for sheep to trample. In other words, no more cultivated fields, no more beautiful vineyards. It's going to be the kind of place only suitable to animals, not people. God is going to preserve the house of David, but Ahaz and the nation of Judah are going to suffer because they failed to trust God. There are going to be severe consequences. Now, we have two options. 
You're going to face crisis. That's not an option. When that happens, you can act on your own or you can look to God and trust him. Listen, if you decide to act on your own, you need to know there will be consequences. I want to go back to my car again, just for a minute. It is only because of the intervention of God at the last possible minute that I did not purchase a new car. See, right now I have a very nice truck and it's paid for. If I had done what I wanted to do or what I was thinking about doing, I would have a car and a note for six years. I'd have a new car note. How many of you know new car notes are not cheap anymore? I'd have that for six years because I acted on my own without trusting God. It's only because God intervened at the last minute by his mercy that I wasn't saddled with that debt. That's what happens when we act on our own and don't look to God. We face consequences. Listen, if you have a marriage crisis, or you, you may act on your own and go out and secure counseling from some secular marriage counselor. Here's the problem. Very often, worldly counsel contradicts biblical wisdom. Did you know that? Very often what the secular world will counsel you to do is the opposite of God's wisdom in the scripture. You may be in a financial crisis. You can react and run out to the world and see what they tell you to do about your crisis and never consult the Lord, never seek the Lord's will. And you could end up in deeper debt or in bankruptcy. See, a lot of times the way the world will tell you to solve all your money problems is just file bankruptcy and start over. That's not what the Bible's going to tell you to do. It's in any crisis. You, you, can, you can end up doing things that hurt you. If you have a job crisis, you, you may want to act on your own to preserve your job. Well, listen, you may preserve your job at the cost of your witness before the world by doing things that harm your witness. There are consequences when you just act to try to resolve your crisis without looking to the Lord and trusting what he says, think about our church. If we just decide we're going to act and make our own plans and do our own thing to try to preserve the church, we can end up taking some wrong turns. Can I tell you what we could end up doing? We could end up being a success as an organization and a failure as a church. You hearing me? We may, we may succeed and have a thriving organization and yet we may have failed to be and do what God put us here to be and do. Are you with me? That would be the consequence of going out and doing our own thing. Even if we got what we wanted, bigger crowds, we can still be a failure in the eyes of God. That's why we can't act on our own. We have to look to the wisdom of God. Listen, we're going to face moments of crisis. 
We don't have a choice about that, but we do have a choice about how we respond to the crisis. So here's the message. Here's the whole thing in a sentence. When we face a crisis, we must not act on our own, but trust God to preserve us. When we face a crisis, we must not act on our own, but trust God to preserve us. Listen, if we look to God in crisis, we will experience His peace. If we look to ourselves, we're going to multiply our problems. If we trust God in crisis, we'll move forward in our walk with God. If we trust ourselves, we're only going to go backwards. If we rely on God in crisis, our lives will become a testimony of God's faithfulness. But if we rely on ourselves, our lives will only become a testimony of man's foolishness. I believe this is a critical message for this church as we get ready to move into a new year. We have to decide who's going to chart our course forward. Are we going to act on our own and look to man's wisdom and secular ideas and philosophies or are we going to look to God and trust Him to preserve us and help us to move forward? Listen, whatever your crisis, don't act on your own. Look to God and trust Him. How do you know you can trust Him? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's how you know you can trust Him. Let's pray.